you get to swing right out of the gates, man. So All right, give man. Give everything. Amen, brother. See you, brother. <laughs> Well, it's good to be here in uh, Atlantic Canada, Prince Edward Island. Uh, my wife, Angela, is here with me, and we're grateful for the warm hospitality that we've already experienced here and the generosity and the opportunity just to be among you folks on this beautiful island. Uh, this conference kind of combines two of the best things in life, the Gospel Coalition and uh, the beauty of God's creation. So for us, it's a, it's a win-win. Uh, we come from Chicago, uh, the home of the world champion Chicago Blackhawks, I might add. So uh, I know y'all are hockey fans up here in Canada. Um, I debated actually long and hard whether to tell you that um, as a junior high kid, I kind of had a crush on Ann Shirley. So um, I wasn't sure if that would permanently take away my man card or not. But since I already drive a minivan, I figured <laughs> I'm pretty far down that road already. So uh, growing up, my parents um, chose not to have a television in, television in their home. And so finally, in junior high, we, uh, we were allowed to get a, a, a screen with a VHS player. And I don't know if any of you here remember what a VHS player is. Uh, maybe you can Google that on your smartphone. I don't know and find out what that is. Um, but pretty much the only things we could watch were uh, Anne of Green Gables, and, and uh, when we got tired of that, we watched Anne of Avonlea. So um, I pretty much memorized all the plot lines. Uh, for a while, I was kind of mad at Anne for just so skillfully torturing Gilbert's heart there, that poor guy. They dragged it out for like four, you know, four videos, so that was pretty, pretty tough. Um, but I didn't come to talk about Anne Shirley, thankfully. I want to come to talk to you about discipleship, the theme of this conference. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And uh, Jesus said that the way that Christians grow is through uh, the Word of God. John 17, 17, uh, Jesus says, uh, prays this prayer, and he, he says, sanctify them by your truth. Thy Word is truth. Um, Paul wrote to the Romans and said that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And uh, while there's many ways to be fed the Word of God, <clears throat> personal Bible reading, small group uh, study, reading books, uh, formal education, uh, conversations, radio preaching, podcasts, uh, you name it. The Bible seems to tell us that the regular systematic preaching of the Word is really the lifeblood of the church and how people grow. Uh, consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1 where he says that God chose to use the foolishness of preaching to save men. Not foolish preaching, which there's plenty of, but the foolishness of preaching to save men. Or, or think of Paul's words to the Romans when he asked, how will they hear without a preacher? Or in Ephesians, we read that the pastor-teacher uh, is a gift to the church. Jesus said to Peter, uh, if you remember, on the shores of Galilee, uh, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. And then, of course, Peter said to church leaders in his book, Feed the flock of God. Paul says to young Timothy, before, he, before Paul was to die, he says to Timothy, preach the word. So I think it's fitting that we open this conference on discipleship by talking about preaching. But here I don't want to just talk today about the importance of preaching, because as most of you are pastors or ministry workers, you know the importance of that. That's what you do. Uh, if you're associated with the Gospel Coalition, you know their, their emphasis on good, solid preaching. But I want to look at a text that you might not associate all the time with preaching, but one I think is vital for every pastor, one that has deeply convicted me in my role as a, as a pastor. We're going to look at the importance of a pastor's words, particularly the ones he delivers in the pulpit. So I want you to turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. The theme of the book of James, uh, as you know, is authentic faith. It's written to the church and it shares the practical way that the gospel is worked out in us as the church in real life. It, it basically asks the question, what is the gospel we proclaim, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, the, the hope of the resurrection and, and Christ as reigning king, restoring, renewing all things, what does that look like lived out in the life of those who have been transformed by it? 
That's the question that the book of James answers. Now, when we think about James chapter 3, we typically think of this as a verse or as a passage directed from the pastor to the people on how we should uh, control our tongues. Growing up in the church, we had a lot of messages on this um, passage. And while it has that application, I actually think the primary audience of this chapter is not necessarily the laity, but I think it's those who preach the word. So I'm going to use the first two, chapter, first two verses of this chapter to kind of overlay the entire chapter as we heed James' warning about our ministry. And so my first point is this, the sober calling of the teacher. The sober calling of the teacher. He says in verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You need to know some of the background of this text. James is, prim- is, is speaking here to the early church. Um, his audience was primarily, if, if not completely, a Jewish. And their background, background came from what they were accustomed to in the synagogue. Uh, here in the synagogue, the, the teacher, the diaskos, was highly esteemed. He typically gathered disciples who followed him and hung on his every word. The rabbi was very well respected. And when he would teach in the synagogue, there was, there was just reverence for what he said. In fact, the word rabbi meant my great one. According to rabbinic tradition, a person was to revere a rabbi even over his own parents. And so as the early church began to gather and assemble, as the Lord was uh, building his church in those early days, they kept many of those traditions. Uh, it was also the style of many of the early gatherings to be more of an open forum where folks would kind of speak up if God gave them a word. In fact, Paul had a set down some guidelines in 1 Corinthians 14 about, about order and service in the church. So you combine the position of the teacher drawn from the synagogue and the open style of meeting, and what you had in the early church was a bunch of people really vying ambitiously for the spot of a teacher. They saw how respected that the, the teacher was, and they wanted that position for some of its prestige and glory. And so James here is issuing a warning. He's saying, hey, wait a minute, slow down. Do you realize the gravity of this position? He's, James is echoing the words of Jesus who actually rebuked the teachers in his day. In Matthew 23, verse 5, Jesus said, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by others. And James is calling us to something here. The the Scripture clearly gives a a weight to the office of the one who teaches the Word. This is a gift given by God. It's to be taken reverently. And, And just to be sure, James is not saying that to recognize your gift is a sin, Uh, We read Paul's words to Timothy in in 1 Timothy 3.1 where he says that if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer or a pastor, you could say he desires a noble task. So the desire to understand and teach and preach the word, that passion is a good thing to desire. You don't want pastors in the pulpit that aren't passionate about what they're doing. Then we should should get out out of the pulpit. But James is just saying that we need not take the magnitude of the office lightly. And he, he does it for two reasons, I think. First, he says the pastor will be judged by God in a greater way. He says those that teach the word will be judged. Now, this isn't the judgment of sin, obviously, which, which occurred at the cross when God uh, poured out his wrath for our sin on Christ and Christ satisfied the wrath of God. Amen, Right? But this here is more of a, the Bema seat where God will, will weigh our works, what, what we did with what he, the opportunities he gave us. And it seems to imply here that God will, will judge pastors and teachers greater. Anyone in a position of spiritual leadership. In, in Luke 12, 48, Jesus said, To whom much is given, much is required. Hebrews 13, 17 reminds us that teachers will give account for the spiritual lives of the people who hear their teaching. 
And again, I don't want to make it seem like pastors are some kind of elite people that only the, you know, the upper crust can do this and you know, that we as pastors have some special line to God or we should be treated like kings or anything like that. I'm not making that case at all. In fact, the Bible makes the opposite case that we should be servants. But James is saying that nobody should simply angle to be a teacher of the word just because it kind of seems like a good gig. <laughs> this is a job that has to be approached soberly. We stand in and we speak for God by sharing his word. We are handling the very words of God. Secondly, I think he, he gives this warning because the words, the words of a pastor matter. What a teacher says in the pulpit, what a preacher says, has power. When we get up and say, thus saith the Lord, we better make sure we know what the Lord is saying because we have the power to lead people astray. Kent Hughes writes this. He says, teachers wield incredible power. Young or untaught minds in the hands of a skilled teacher are like clay in a potter's hands. And if you think about it, whole movements have been started based on the words of someone who claims to speak the words of God. Consider all the false religions and cults. They all began with the very persuasive words of a charismatic leader who claims to speak for God. Or think in a positive way of all the great gospel movements throughout history. They began with faithful preaching by men of God. And James here uses three images to illustrate how powerful the tongue is. Each Im image illustrates how, how small yet powerful the tongue is. And keep in mind, uh, as, you're, as you're thinking about this, that I think he's specifically referring to the pastor's tongue in the pulpit. In verse 5, he says, it's such a little member, but it boasts great things. And he uses the illustration, first of a horse and bridle, then of a ship and a rudder, and a fire and a spark. And there's some interesting concepts in here that you can't miss. In each illustration, a very small thing moves something very big, right? A small bit in a horse's mouth enables that massive animal to be manipulated by the rider. He can take that horse where, wherever it needs to go. A large vessel on the ocean, no matter how large it is, is steered by a very small rudder. It may have huge engines that uh, empower it, but without a rudder, it will only go forward. And a skilled captain can take that rudder and drive it even against fierce winds if he knows how to manipulate the rudder, steer it. And of course, there's a spark and a fire. Now, we typically think of gossip and fire and how one idle word can ignite a fire and a controversy and hurt reputations in people. We know how that works, especially in our churches, uh, in our congregations. But James here, at least in the beginning, is not really negative. He's just acknowledging the power of the tongue in this way. And a fire is often used for good. All of you got here today because a spark was lit in the engine of your car. <laughs> in the wintertime, there's a, a fire somewhere in your house in a furnace that heats your home. We use fire to, to heat metals and make all kinds of products that we depend on. And this is what James is saying in these illustrations. He's reminding us of the power of the tongue, particularly the preacher's tongue. See, God created language this way to be powerful. He created us uniquely to speak and for our tongues to have that kind of power. Because in this way, when we use language, in, in a way, we image God, who's a, who's a God of language, who speaks. So we have to be careful about approaching James' words here and not think that all James is just telling us to do is to just shut up and not talk. <laughs> no, God designed the tongue to have power. And I, again, I think in these illustrations, he's primarily talking to pastors. He's letting us know that the words we say on Sunday matter. It really matters. And that's why, for instance, we must, in our preaching, separate what is our opinion from what's God's word. We must do that. Too often pastors may make people think that their opinion on cultural or political matters 
is the same as the Word of God. Or we're tempted to preach our preferences, our traditions, as if they are orthodoxy. And you know, Jesus rebuked the teachers of his day for this. He said, you teach for doctrine the commandments of men. But see, our job is to simply preach the word, preach what God has already declared. That's how our people are fed and how how they grow. Pastors shouldn't say more than what the word says, and we shouldn't say less than the word says either. You know, there's a lot of times as a pastor, and I'm sure you face this too, that I'm tempted to preach against something that folks really want me to preach against. Why don't you preach against this or preach against that? But if the text does not preach against it, what right do I have to stand and to say, thus saith the Lord? What right do I have to do that? In the United States, and I don't know if it's like this here, there's tremendous pressure on pastors on both sides of the political aisle to speak out, so to speak, for a particular party or movement. Why don't you speak out on this? Why don't you speak out on this? And I I just, look, God has given us this text, and this is what we preach. Now, if this text hits one of those issues, man, I'm going to preach it. But if it doesn't touch that, I, I can't preach that. A lot of times, churches descend into legalism because we add to the Scriptures. We're tempted to put our preferences and our traditions and our rules, what we like, what Dan likes, on the same level as Scripture. And I think that's a gross miscarriage of our duty. At the same time, we we must not preach less than what the Scripture says either. And this is why I think it's vital we preach expository, book by book, passage by passage, in context, in context, and not skip tough parts of Scripture. Man, there's a lot of times, you know, you're going through a book and there's a passage. It's like, man, I don't want to preach this. This is not going to go down well. This is not going to make people feel warm and fuzzy when I'm done. But we must preach it. There's a great temptation to be socially and culturally relevant by sort of massaging the text to fit what people want to hear. And we must not do that. My second point is this, the sinful condition of the teacher. And then in verse 2, James says, we all stumble in many ways. Now this word stumble means to offend, but more deeply to sin. And I, I think, again, for a pastor, this is so important. There's three powerful implications here in what James is saying. First, it's a reminder to teachers and preachers and spiritual leaders particularly that, hey, remember, you're not God. You're a sinner. And that would seem obvious, right? But spiritual leadership can get kind of heady. We can start to think we're God's gift to the world. We can start to create a sort of force field around us so that we have a bunch of people who tell us how great we are. And we sort of kick out anyone who has any opposing views. And it keeps us from seeing our own sinfulness. Again, I quote Kent Hughes. He writes this, It's a heady thing to dress in your Sunday best and stand in front of a congregation and be the authority for one hour, the voice of God to his people, but it can ruin your soul. With this syndrome and process, you can easily begin to harden so that you become an autocratic little pope who can brook no other opinion or discussion but your own. Those who disagree with you are branded intellectual or unspiritual, depending on the context. The result, and this is, this is strong, Hughes says the result is a morally bankrupt ministry which competes for its constituency. I want you to hold your place there and turn with me First John chapter 1. And this is, a, this is a few verses that's really convicted me as a pastor, as church leader. And 1 John chapter 1, John writes this, verse 8. And we know these verses really well. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not, his word is not in us. See, here's what happens. We forget the wickedness and sinfulness of our own hearts. I mean, we, we will say 
oh yeah, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. I mean, right? No one's going to say publicly, oh, I'm perfect. I don't sin, right? And I don't think John's audience would say that either. But I think what John is saying here and what James was saying in chapter James 3 is this. Hey, don't be so deceived to think that you're right all the time in everything you say and teach. You see? You see, you can say, yeah, everyone's a sinner. I'm a sinner. But if every single time you're confronted or questioned, you're never the guy that's wrong ever, you're, you're falling into this self-deception. You're de- and, and it says you're deceiving yourself and calling God a liar. <laughs> and God's basically saying, here's me, I'm perfect, here's you. One of us is wrong, and here's a clue, it's not me. <laughs> you know? And you ask yourself, can a preacher of the gospel actually be against the gospel and self-deceive? Can that happen? Absolutely. I mean, I, I've been in church cultures like this. And it happens slowly over time as you push away people and you stop confessing your sin. When someone points out something you have said and you get defensive and you slowly attract people around you who are just kind of like fanboys or syncophants or people who drink your Kool-Aid and they stop telling you what needs to be said and they start telling you what you want to hear. Man, that's a dangerous place. And James is saying to us preachers, listen, man, you're a sinner. You have a tendency to sin. Remember that when you get up and preach and teach God's word, realize that you are a humble sinner handling a holy word of God. And and admit it when you've gotten it wrong. I like the humility expressed by uh, Billy Graham. In the book, Leadership Secrets of Billy Graham, a story was told of him. Graham Keith, treasurer of the Billy Graham Association, Billy's lifelong friend tells this story. He says, I was on an elevator with Billy when another man in the elevator recognized him. He said, you're Billy Graham, aren't you? Yes, Billy said. Well, the man said, you are truly a great man. And Billy immediately responded, no, I'm not a great man. I just have a great message. Isn't that great? That's the attitude of humility a pastor must have. I think of John the Baptist, right? When, when his, his followers were concerned because, you know, all of a sudden Jesus is on the scene and, and everyone's flocking to Jesus and they're losing market share, you know? It's like, hey, everyone's going there. And John the Baptist says, great. He's like, I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is. I just point the way. That's the mission of a pastor. And by saying we all stumble in many ways and referring to pastors and teachers, James here in James chapter 3 is getting at something. He's forcing us, I think, to realize that we cannot tame our tongues on our own. Dependent on our own giftedness, we will stray from the word. We will not preach with the power of God. Listen to what he says about the condition of our tongues. Our tongues, he says, are naturally corrupted. And he uses pretty inflammatory language to describe them. Verse 8, he says it's, they're full of deadly poison. They're, they're a restless evil. Verse 6, a world of unrighteousness that stains the whole body and is set on fire by hell. Does this language remind you of anything? It really should. It should take us back. It takes us back to the Garden of Eden. And James is reminding us that our tongues were created powerful, to be powerful. That language is a beautiful thing, created to be a powerful thing by God. But something happened that corrupted our tongues. You see, it was in the garden where a serpent injected his deadly poison into the human race. And how did he motivate Eve? Through cunning words, through his tongue. And this is what James is saying. He's saying that God created our tongues to be powerful, to express worship and glory to God, to build up and to create, to encourage, to lift, to be constructive. But something happened. Something dreadful happened. And as hard as we try... We see that the human tongue continues in every generation to produce evil, evil that comes straight from hell. (laughs) We're so proud of how progressive we are as a generation. We have iPhones, we can Google stuff. You know, we're, we're pretty modern people, and yet we've invented newer and better ways to hurt with our tongues, have we not? What should give life? Now, 
gives death. And pastors, I, I just want to dive with you into how James describes the fallen, corrupted tongue. We need to know this. So we are sober. So we apply the gospel to our preaching of the word. James says this powerful organ is a world of unrighteousness and it corrupts the entire body. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans. Romans chapter 3, he says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Or, or, or Psalm 140 verse 3 says they have sharpened their tongues like a serpent. Adder's poison is under their lips. Our tongues are a naturally destructive force, a small member among our body parts, and yet perhaps the most destructive. And James almost gives you a sense of hopelessness here. All right? The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It's set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the course of life, and set on fire of hell. And actually, when James uses this phrase, set on fire the entire course of life, he's, he's using a very rare phrase, at least rare in the New Testament. A course of life is that phrase he's using. And, and most Greek scholars feel that this refers to the wheel of nature. And in the Greek world of James' day, this was a common phrase that referred to kind of the continuity of life, of life sort of the constantness of life, that life was like a wheel with its unending round of life and birth and death and just keeps going on and going on. And here's what I think James is saying, I think. I think he's saying that the corrupted poison tongue from the fall inflames the body, gives death, and just continues the cycle of destruction. And maybe you try to change your speaking habits and you make a good effort of it for a while, but then it starts up again and you, you try to squash it and then it starts up again. Gossip, envy, strife, anger. You can't seem to get a handle on it. Like the wheel of life, it goes around and around, right? And then he, he dials up the hopelessness and says, the tongue is on fire of hell. And James, I think, you have to see what he's referring to here. Hell refers to a place called Gehenna, which was a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. Jesus described this as the place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Have you ever heard someone say, or perhaps you might have said it, that your tongue keeps getting you in trouble? It's a continual source of trouble. It doesn't need provoking. I mean, I have four children. Man, if I ever understood the doctrine of original sin, man, have kids. Man, you don't have to teach them to like be mean to each other and savage each other and say, I mean, they could be hugging each other one minute and just like savaging each other the next. We never had to teach them that, right? Something happened to the tongue. But I think there's a deeper meaning here in James' words, describing the tongue as set on fire of hell. He's saying that hell itself is the source of our tongue problem. So what I'm saying to you and to me as pastors, as communicators of the word, we don't simply have a speech problem or a personality problem or a leadership problem. It goes deeper than that. Doug Moo says, the power of Satan himself, the chief denizen of hell, gives the tongue its great destructive potential. Our tongues are corrupted. And unless there's divine intervention, our tongues will keep spewing venom because the origin is Satan himself from the depths of hell. So we can't rely on a personality or a program or seminary training to fix our tongues. We need a gospel intervention. We need a savior for our tongues. And then he says in verse 7 and 8, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And, and, and again, James harkens back to the beginning, to creation. He affirms the uniqueness of man. Man has subdued all of creation, birds, animals. All of creation is under the care of man. Man has done great things. He's built buildings that reach into the sky. He's created technological marvels like pretty much everything Apple makes. Amen. <laughs> We can do heart surgery and brain surgery. We could put a man on the moon. And this is great. This is part of the mandate to subdue creation, to, to tame it. But despite all of our progress, we cannot tame the tongue. 
It's still spewing out hatred and violence and death. Man has come so far, but he can't control his own tongue. It says no man can tame the tongue. No man can tame the serpent poison tongue. But you know what? Jesus was the man who conquered the snake, who inflicted the poison. He crushed the serpent on the cross. He defeated sin and death. And because of Jesus, we now have the power to overcome the vile nature of our tongues. Amen? You see, we don't really have a speech problem. We have a heart problem. And Jesus reminded us that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. You know, you can sort of hide your true feelings for a while, maybe be a little bit more eloquent, but ultimately you will fail unless you have a new heart, which is the source of your words. And this is what Jesus promised to do and what he did do. The prophet Ezekiel reminded us that the Messiah would give us a new heart. And see, no human can tame the tongue, but Jesus was no ordinary man. And so because of the gospel, because he's defeated sin and death and crushed the serpent, the gospel regenerates us. And when we submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit, it affects our tongue and our speech. Amen? This is why pastors of all people in the congregation and in the church, of all people, we who are tasked with using our tongues to proclaim the word of God, we need the gospel the most. Because without the sanctifying power, our preaching and our teaching will be corrupted. It will be preached with corrupt words. And of course, we know that God can use anybody to even pagans to accomplish his work. But our preaching will not have power if we do not speak with transformed, spirit-renewed tongues. He says here in verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not so be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is a rebuke here, but you see what James is getting at. He's appealing to gospel transformation here. Only the gospel can do this kind of work in us as pastors and teachers and leaders. And this is why every Sunday, every time we preach, we must yield our hearts and souls to Christ as we preach the word. Because we have the ability in the pulpit to either bring cursing or blessing from the pulpit. We can either communicate the life-changing message of the gospel or we'll communicate our opinions, our ideas, our legalisms. And so our own frailty as, as a preacher, preachers of the word must bring us back to the foot of the cross. The, the foot of the cross. And I love how he talks about water. The tongue bringing forth water. It was Jesus who told Nicodemus about living water, and the woman at the well, about living water, and the Jews at the temple, he stood and said that he was the source of living water and that through him, rivers of living water might flow from us. So the bottom line is, ministers of the gospel, we have the potential within us to produce both good and bad words. Words that uplift and point people to Jesus or words that by their falseness or anti-gospel message can tear down people's lives. The third point, we, well, before we get to the third point, I just want to finish this verse here. James then tells us, what about the fruit of our ministry, preaching ministry? He says, can a fig tree produce olives? Of course not. Olives produce olives. Grapes produce grapes. So if your preaching is gospel-centered and word-based, then you'll produce disciples of Jesus. But if it's selfish, agenda-driven, you'll You'll produce little legalists. And the third and final point is the sign of gospel-centered ministry. The last part of James 3, 2 offers kind of the fruit of a mature and growing teacher of the word. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to also to bridle his whole body. James uses the word here, sometimes translated perfect. Um, it doesn't mean perfect in the sense that we don't sin. It's that word teleos, which refers to maturity, moral and spiritual growth. It's a word James uses often. Spiritual maturity. 
It's the gospel of Christ being worked out in our lives. It's the work of the Spirit rooting out our flesh and revealing Christ in us. And you see, James is saying that the mark of a growing pastor is one who has seen God gradually get a hold of his speech. You can see how God has changed him by the way he preaches. He's mature. He's measured. He's able to effectively use his tongue in a way that effectively communicates the word of God. He's sober in his speech. And, and don't discount, by the way, that in, in every list or indicator in the New Testament that talks about spiritual leadership and spiritual growth, you see those words sober or balanced or mature. We kind of overlook those, right? We look for other more um, flashy character traits. In the church today, we prize flash and entertainment, but Jesus prizes faithfulness and humility and balance. But then James goes further and he says, you can see the effect of a man's word in the culture of the church he leads. We are responsible, pastors and leaders, for the cultures that we create in our church. We're responsible for the cultures we create. If we've pursued wisdom and understand and have preached the gospel in our pulpits, the, the true wisdom of God and Christ and the gospel, you will know it and see it by the people. And if we haven't, you will know that. And he gives us here two competing pictures. First, what a gospel culture isn't, and then what one, what one is. Verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. He first gives us a picture of anti-gospel leadership. What kind of culture is created when pastors have not uh, been renewed in their spirits, and their tongues have not, not been surrendered to Christ? When pastors are arrogant, when they handle the word flippantly, when they lead with their egos you get bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And you would expect that among ministers of the word, those who hold in their hands the priceless message of the gospel, that there would not be a culture of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. This word selfish ambition, sometimes translated strife, is a word that actually means party spirit. And it was used of someone in those days that was almost like a whip in a house of representatives or someone that counts the votes. Someone who sought office by unfair means. And Paul used the same word when he described people who speak pride by contention. He's basically saying this is naked, raw ambition. It's a deep jealousy and pride, a sense that you have a turf at your church that you have to protect it's using ministry as a personal means of significance. And James is saying that someone who accumulates Bible knowledge, who desires to be spiritual so that he can be somebody, so that he can be significant, this is not wisdom. This is not a gospel-centered ministry. This is a spirit that engenders strife. And I, I've seen this kind of leadership modeled, unfortunately. When a leader begins to see the other people in the church, not as brothers and sisters in the Lord, but as competition, as impediments to his personal goals. And it always hurts the work of God, and it always hurts people. I've known people like this, and we can, all of us can fall prey to this. Leaders who consider ministry their own personal plans, platform to advance them. And they'll step on and they'll toss under the bus anybody who gets in their way. And James calls this what it is. He says, don't, don't call this leadership. <laughs> don't call this wisdom. If you do this, you're lying against the truth. You see, sometimes we Christians like to spin our weaknesses as strengths. And I think that's what he's getting at here. I've seen this done and I've done this myself. I've seen spiritual leaders treat people terribly, act like jerks frankly. And you hear their fans or, or themselves say things like, well, that's just 
courage, you know? He's courageous. Or that's him being decisive and taking a stand. I'm taking a stand for the gospel. No, you're not. You're taking a stand for yourself. And that's not wisdom. Don't, don't spin it. James calls it what it is. In other words, he says, don't blame God and say that your, your naked ambition is just you being spiritual. James says this comes from within. He says it's earthly, sensual, and devilish. He basically nails the three enemies of the Christian, right? Pride and jealousy in a Christian are sin. They come from the world. They're earthly. They come from the flesh. They're sensual. They come from Satan. They're devilish. See, there's a part of us that wants to be significant. And the enemy is crafty at using the church, using Bible knowledge, at appealing to that side of us. And it seems so good. We're good at making it seem spiritual. And it's a worldly wisdom that says we need to be recognized. We need to be applauded for our brilliant wisdom and spiritual insights. Someone needs to pat me on the back for this. And don't think the devil can't use Christian success, ministry success to accomplish this. We as pastors have to die to our flesh. We have to put on the wisdom of God through the Spirit and resist that jealousy and pride. And a real good test is to say, am I jealous of someone else's spiritual success? And God will reveal that. Maybe someone gets more attention or more notoriety or a book deal or another platform and you say to yourself, man, I'm, I'm way more talented. I've worked harder. I deserve this. And there's a whole world of Christianity that, that puts this kind of ambition on a pedestal and calls it good and wholesome. And James says, this is wicked. This is against the gospel. And the fruit of this culture in a church is jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and vile practice. James says, what is the culture of your church? If they're full of disorder and confusion, if there's constant drama and politics and backstabbing, this is not a gospel culture. The word disorder means instability. The same word he used to describe the double-binded man that's unstable in all his ways. The fruit of jealousy and pride of a spiritual leader in a church is instability and every kind of evil. And folks, I've seen this. I've seen people who preach by contention, whose lives are constantly marked by controversy, whose leadership is always unstable. And mark it down, these types of people, and it could be you, it could be me, will do anything to get ahead, any kind of evil. And it begins slowly, right? You stop listening to other people's advice. You start to think that maybe you're the answer. Maybe you have a little bit of success and now you want to sort of be the guy, the, the, the one with the answers. Some Christian leaders, I think, act as though controversy is a spiritual gift, right? And there's times when we have to take a stand and times we have to be courageous. And the cross itself is controversial. But those whose lives are marked by continual strife and fighting, always stirring the pot, always advancing their pet agendas, the result is strife and every kind of evil. And it, this is a sober warning for you and for me. We're not above falling into that. James says we all stumble in many ways. We're all sinners. We can easily forget that the story is not about us, but about Christ in us, the hope of glory. Every week before we lead our service, I, I pray, Lord, I, today we want the story of this church to not be me or the worship team or anything, but the story to be, to be Christ. So what does a gospel culture look like? We see what it doesn't look like. He says the wisdom from above is pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What's the fruit of gospel-centered preaching by a pastor whose tongue has been rescued by Jesus? The fruits of the Spirit sowing into the culture of the church. That's the result. And I'm not going to break down all these fruits. They're, they're very similar to the list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But he talks about purity, impartiality, sincerity, gentleness, open to reason, merciful. Don't you think it's funny 
that when we look for pastors to fill our pulpits, we don't usually look for these traits. But it's no accident that these are mentioned in almost every list of spiritual leadership. Pastors shouldn't be the jerks in the world. I'm just saying. We shouldn't be the ones with the short fuse. There's a sense here of forbearance, of letting things roll off our backs. Pastors should actually be people who, I don't know, other people want to be with. And that's not always the case. Christians shouldn't be the cranky people in the world. I mean, we have peace with God. I love what Steve says. We take the word seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously, man. We love God. Philippians 4, 5, I love, says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Just being reasonable and agreeable. 1 Timothy 3, 3 says, one of the qualities of a pastor is to be not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. You shouldn't have to tell a pastor that, but I've met some that were pretty violent with their words. We should be gentle. Pastors and ministry people can be among the most abusive, angry, manipulative people. And sometimes we praise this as a good trait of leadership. James says that's not real leadership. It's not gospel leadership. Look, we should be firm on the things where God has clearly spoken. And flexible in the things where he is not. And speak with grace. Can we die to our preferences? Can we be willing to change? Shouldn't we? The gospel should humble us in all of these ways, right? Because the more you pursue knowledge, and the more God gives you wisdom, the more you dive into the gospel, that should make us more lovable and likable. It shouldn't make us know-it-alls. I mean, the more I study the Word, the more I realize I don't know. (laughs) The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, the right way to accumulate knowledge is to realize you don't have it. And you're a person humble enough to know your own frailties. And he says here then, a gospel culture looks like this. Verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Direct contrast to the fruit of fake wisdom, of selfish ambition, which leads to discord, disharmony, and strife. We have a fruit of righteousness. And I think what he's saying here is that if we pursue as pastors and leaders godly wisdom through relationship with Christ, the legacy of our lives will be that of righteousness. When people follow us as we follow Christ, that's what will be produced. That we've created an environment of peace where God is glorified. Genuine wisdom is reflected in meekness and humility, pursuing peace. And those who pursue peace because they have the peace of God will create the environment where righteousness can flourish. Righteousness can't be produced and flourish in an environment, a culture of anger and selfishness and pride. And again, I'll say this again. I believe this is very true. I believe we as church leaders are responsible for the cultures that we create. And it begins with the words we preach on Sunday, that we preach the text of the Word of God. We preach the gospel. And James is calling us to an authentic, gospel-saturated culture of peace where there's no agendas, no legalism, no promoting men, but just real people coming together to love each other, to love God, and to reach the lost. Amen? Amen. And the legacy of that, I believe, is righteousness. It doesn't say you're going to have a big church, but it says what kind of people will you have? What kind of culture will you have? Now, as we close... I want to circle back around and close by saying this. Pastors, and I'm saying this mainly to myself, the words we say in the pulpit, they matter. When we open the word of God, man, let's just preach what God's already said. Those words matter. People's lives rise and fall on preaching. And first, it should motivate us to fall on our knees in dependence upon Christ. James had said earlier that the law of God is like a mirror. It reveals to us our inability to produce righteousness, the sin in our own hearts. It should drive us to Jesus in repentance and faith. It should cause us to cling to Jesus for his grace and his mercy. We can't produce these things in ourselves, folks. We can't be more 
gentle and kind and gracious. Christ has to do it in us through his spirit. James says this kind of wisdom, he says here, comes where? From above. Left to ourselves, naturally, we won't be these kind of, this kind of pastor. So we need the Lord. We need the Lord. The Lord. He has to do it in us. And secondly, and lastly, it should motivate us to be honest with ourselves. Part of what James is getting at is that we're not really honest with ourselves as Christians, are we? We act out of flesh and we sort of paper over it by blaming God or spinning it like it's okay. Or we, we hide. And again, I just want to summarize everything I've said today that those who handle the Word of God have an awesome responsibility. Doesn't mean it's not fun. We can't joke and be real and have a good time. Um, I've already had an awesome time with the team here and meeting all of you guys. And we can take this seriously, but not take ourselves seriously. Doesn't mean we walk around with a stiff upper lip and all that. Doesn't mean we think we're God's gift to creation as pastors. It just means we're sensitive to the Spirit's leading. We stay anchored to the Word of God. We pass down what was given to us, the Word of God. The, as Paul told Timothy, the deposit of faith, as Jude said, the, the faith once delivered to the saints. We steward it well in our generation. And when our time has passed, someone else will come along and, and take that up. So when we get up and open the Word, again, let's preach what God has already said, knowing that the words have power. And that people take our words as if they are from God. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to be here. Oh Lord, we are privileged <laughs> as your ministers to, to carry with us the beautiful message of the gospel. Lord, we are heralds of, of your message. We take your word, the text, and preach what you've already said, the good news. Lord, we can't improve on what you've already said. Our opinions, our preferences, <laughs> they, they are not powerful, but your word is, Lord. Lord, I pray that you do a gospel work here in Atlanta, Canada, among these churches, a renaissance of the gospel, that there'd be revival here, that people would turn their hearts to you, that your people first would be revived, and then that would just spill out over into the community, and people who are far from you would, would see the fire that you've put in people and want to have what they have. Lord, bless each pastor here today and each Christian leader. Lord, I pray that you give them a special refreshment and blessing this week that um, their spirits and souls would be revived and they'd be excited and fired up to go preach the word. Thank you for the staff here and for their tireless work and effort for putting this this on, Lord, this conference, for their hospitality, their generosity. Richly bless them, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.